there's a lot of people that, that you know now, people that are acquaintances, maybe some friends, that a little while after high school, you won't really be in touch with them anymore. And I know that for some of you, I heard good. That's, that's a good thing. You're looking forward to that day. For some of you, that's, that's kind of depressing because it's, it's people that you've spent so much time with over these years. Once you get out of high school, it's like you don't even know them anymore. And as somebody who's been out of high school for a while, I'm not going to say how long, one of the great things about Facebook is I've been able to connect with people that I haven't really talked to since I graduated. And it's been a long time since I graduated. Through something like Facebook, you get to learn about somebody's life. You get to reconnect. You get to be social with them again when maybe you lost touch with them. When you got things like Facebook, when you got all these programs, the whole point is to connect with other people. Did you know that there are some people who do some really weird things to connect with each other? They don't, they don't even necessarily use all of this technology that we're talking about. I got online and started looking at, at different clubs, different societies that exist in our world. And there are some people that connect over some really strange things. L tell me what you think about these. There is one association called the Benevolent and Loyal Order of Pessimists. Y'all know what a pessimist is? Yeah. Yeah, they always think bad. There is actually a society of pessimists. Or how about this one? The North American Association of Ventriloquists. They get together because they like to talk through puppets. Or, here's, here's one I like. The Rat Fan Club. Rat. The Rat Fan Club. Like, as in the animal. No, they're not. They, no. No. Okay, yeah, carry disease. Or this one. The Church of the Subgenius. It's called the Church of the Subgenius. For $30, you can be a member of this Church of the Subgenius, which basically their whole thing is they're a bunch of slackers. And for 30 bucks, you can be a member of it. Oh, they, they get better. They get better. I like this one. The Cheese Racing Association. You want, you want to know what they do for fun? Their mission is to see whose slice of plastic wrapped cheese will inflate, inflate fastest on the grill. That is their mission. That's real. I'm not making this up. There is the Banana Sticker Club. They collect stickers. The stickers you get on a banana, bunch of bananas. There is the World Champion Pumpkin Chunkin Association. They throw pumpkins somehow. Or the International Gnome Club. Like lawn gnomes, they collect them. There's the, and this one's actually, their website picture looks kind of cool because you got all these guys with facial hair. The World Beard and Mustache Champions Association. Guys, I looked at some of those pictures. You got guys with beards and mustaches that come out this far off their face. It, bigger, oh, way bigger than Duck Dynasty. <coughs> and much better manicured. There's the Squirrel Lovers Club. Squirrel Lovers Club. They are, that was, oh, I like that. That was good. They're a little nutty. Yes. And the, and the one that is, that is probably got the most attention because of last week is the, uh, let me say it, say it right, the Peep Researchers Group. And when I say Peep, I'm talking about the Easter marshmallow peeps. This is a, 
a, a club for lovers of Easter peeps. And if you go on their website, because I actually I went to their website to check it out, and it says when they first got together, their whole purpose was to see what outside conditions would, would have, what their effect would be on peeps, like hot, cold, water, wind. That's, that's all they do is they research how things affect peeps. I'm telling you. <laughs> some of those things are really weird. And and some of you are thinking they're really weird now. Some of you are thinking like, hey, I might like to join that peep thing. I like peeps. But you see, these people, as weird as we think they are, all they're trying to do is this. They're trying to be social. They're trying to connect with each other. Now, granted, they've they've picked some strange things to connect over. What's that? You're gonna you're gonna do a beard? Okay. I'd like. I, well, I don't want to see that. I don't want to see that. But you see, guys, them with their clubs and the societies, us with our our Facebook and all these different internet accounts that we use to connect, we're all trying to do the same thing. We're all trying to be social with each other. We're trying to connect, and the reason we're trying to do that is because that is the way God wired us. God made us to want to connect with other people. He made us to want to connect with him. That's why it's so important to us. That's why we'll sit here and we'll create six different accounts and different ways to keep up with people. I've got a Facebook account, and most of you I'm friends with on Facebook. I've also got a Twitter account, and probably about half of you, I follow you or you follow me on Twitter. And there's all, I've asked, I got an Instagram account, but I don't even remember how to log into it, so I don't even use that anymore. I forgot my password, and I'm not going to create a new one. I'm not getting a Snapchat. I told you my thoughts on Snapchats. But every single one of these is us trying to be social because that's how God made us. But you see, the problem we have with this stuff and the issues this creates is that this makes it very easy to get involved in each other's lives one little piece at a time. It also makes it very easy for us to take those glimpses and then never actually get involved in somebody else's life. I can pull up Facebook and I can read, I can look at the pictures that Matthias is putting on from his 3D, 3D creator. I can read, <coughs> excuse me, I can read what Matthew's doing with his band, what he's doing in school. I can read what some of you are doing in sports. I can read Tanner's really com weird comments and some really strange videos. You see, I can, I can get online and I can look at those little pieces and through those things I could say that I know a lot about Matthew. But in truth, I only know what little bit he put out there in that little blurb on Facebook. And see, what that stuff does is that stuff allows us or fools us and makes us think that we actually know people, that we're actually involved in people's lives when the truth is we're not that involved at all. It's kind of like eating junk food. When you're hungry... And you automatically reach for a bag of chips or a candy bar or something else. It will supply, it will, it will fill that need for food for the time being. And you can continue to do that for a long time. But eventually, you're going to have to sit down and eat a real meal. Eventually, you have to actually feed yourself good food. Because in the long run, all that, all that junk food, all that bad stuff, it's not good for you. It's not going to sustain you. It's going to make you heavier. It's going to make you feel bad. It's going to cause problems with your body. It's the same thing 
when we use this to be social all the time. God wired us, made us to want to connect to other people. And unfortunately, I'm not saying this stuff's bad. What I'm saying is we use this as a substitute instead of actually getting into each other's lives and engaging with each other on a daily basis. Talking to people, finding out what's going on. And when we talk about that, when we look at that, and we look at Scripture, the way that God gives us to be able to do that is through the church. If you look at Scripture and you look at how believers engage, especially in the early church, that's what we see. We see people connecting through that body. We see people connecting through the things that they did, through the things that they learned, through the way that they helped each other. That's what God gave us in order for us to be social. So I want to spend a little bit of time tonight talking about what that looks like. And as we do that, we need to start with the fact of what the church is and what the church is not. In fact, I forgot to mention you guys since we're doing the whole social thing and technology. If you've got version on your phone, you can actually pull up a live event for what we're talking about right now. If you search NFBC Youth, you'll have an outline for what you're going to see up here. Sorry, I forgot to mention that at the beginning. Because I know some of y'all use that on Sunday. We've got it available on Wednesday night too. NFBC Youth. Let's talk about first what the church is not. The church is not. We say things like we're going to church. And most of the time when we say that, what that means in our mind is we're going to that building over there. Or we're coming into this building here. But you see, the scripture tells us the church is not a building. It's not the brick. It's not the mortar. It's not what we tend to think of when we think about church. What we say, guys, is, is we, we think about when we say we're going to church, we think about coming to the building and we think about, okay, we're going to sing some songs, we're going to hear a sermon, we might play a game if it's Wednesday night, and then we walk out and we think, okay, I've gone to church. But you see, the reality is, is the building is not the church. The building is just that. It's a building. What is the church is the people. You and I are the church. We could go outside every Wednesday night for the rest of this school year, the rest of this calendar year, and meet on that football field or meet on the softball field or the baseball field or in the parking lot or anywhere, and we would still be at church because we are the church. We could have none of these buildings that we have, and the church would still exist because the church is not the bricks. It's not the mortar. It's the people. That's the way Scripture describes it. It says in 1 Corinthians 3.9, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. You and I are the pieces. When we think about a building, it's us. It's not this. It's not that building over there. The church is made up of the people. It also says in Ephesians 2.19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. We are the building. We are the body. Not where you're sitting. Not the place you go on Wednesday and Sunday. You and I are the church. You and I are the way God has set up for us to connect to each other. 
So when you think about a building or when you think about bricks that this is talking about, if all of those things were individually placed there and there was no mortar, what would happen to that building? It would fall. You've got to have something there that connects those blocks, that connects that wood, that connects those, those bricks. There has to be a connection. You have to be engaged for it to work the way it's supposed to. And that's what this is talking about right here where it says we're the building. that says we are the body. We are the church. Now, don't misunderstand me. We have some great facilities here. And some of you go to other churches on Sundays and you've got some great facilities where you go. And we've been very blessed with those things. And we are supposed to use those things to make Christ known as far and wide as possible and to make disciples and to baptize and to teach and to share the gospel. We've been blessed with those things to be able to do that. But if all of those things, all those buildings were gone tomorrow, the church would still exist. We just have to do something different. Don't make the mistake of thinking, hey, I've gone to church. No, you are the church. You've gone to a building to gather with other people. We are made to engage and be social, and God gives us the church to do that. And when it comes to the church, what I mean by being social, being social means we actually have to engage. That means we actually have to get involved in each other's lives. Face-to-face, life on life to know what's happening with each other. Keeping up to date through Facebook, that's great. But you only learn so much through Facebook. It's not until you get face-to-face with somebody that you actually engage in their life to love with somebody, to hurt with somebody. Okay, That's how you become social, and that's how the church becomes what God designed it to be. So how do we do that? Romans tells us how we do that. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12 how we do that. Here's what he says. Let's start in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Love is where it all starts. That's why Paul starts with this. Let love be genuine. It is hard to engage in somebody's life and care about them if you don't love them. It is. Think about it. If you've ever just tried to go up to a stranger and talk to them, it's hard to know what to ask them. It's hard to know what to talk about because you don't know them, because you haven't had the chance to love them. But see, God says, Paul says, that it all starts with love, and it tells us that God is love in Scripture. So when we talk about loving others, let love be genuine, we don't know what that looks like. We don't know what that feels like unless we know who God is. It starts with a relationship with him. Because if God is love, then that's where we've got to look first. And as we look to him, as we learn who God is, as we learn what his love looks like, then we're able to turn around and we're able to look at each other and to engage and love each other the way Scripture talks about right here. And then it says we're to hold fast, excuse me, abhor what is evil. You know why it says that? Why do you think it says that? Not a rhetorical question. Anybody? Nobody? Why do you think it says abhor what is evil? It means to hate it. Hate it. Can't stand it. Don't want to be around it. Christian. 
What's that? Yeah? Well, why do you think it says that? Because it's bad. You shouldn't want to engage in that. Yeah, it's, it's not a difficult answer. <laughs> I don't ask too many trick questions around here. That's, that's exactly why. Guys, if we're focused on God, if we're concentrated on Him and His love and who He is, God and evil, they don't go together. They're complete opposites. So if we're letting love be genuine, if we're focusing on God and that's who we're understanding love from, then evil doesn't really have anything to do with that. God is love. God is good. God is pure. God is righteous. God is just. Evil is none of that. So if we're focused on Him, we can't have any part of that either. Now, do we fail in that area sometimes? Yeah, we all do because we're all sinners. But this is telling us this is what we're supposed to strive for because it is the very character and nature of who God is. To love and let love be genuine and abhor what evil. And that's why it says hold fast to what is good because that is God. If you're holding fast to God, you don't have time to hold on to that other stuff. So you can abhor it. You can hate it. You can not want to be around it. Not have anything to do with it. And then it goes on and it says love one another with brotherly affection outdo one another in showing honor as you focus on god as you hold fast to him as you ignore what is evil then this is a natural progression if we are experiencing the love of god then it's going to allow us to turn around and show the love of god to other people and that's when we start engaging in people's lives that's when that whole idea of being social really takes on meaning and becomes applicable to everything that we do. And when we love and when we honor other people, then we're showing the love and honor that God deserves because God is the one that created them. We are honoring God through honoring his creation. Does that make sense? Yeah? The way you treat other people says something about the way you understand God. Because if you don't love other people, and I'm not saying you walk up to a stranger and go, I love you. You can. You might get slapped, but you can do it. Yeah, Tanner, somebody's calling you out, buddy. But you know what? We've talked about this before, and I've asked you this question. Do you see people the way Jesus sees people? Yeah, you may not know them personally. You may not be involved in their life, but you can still have a love for that person as somebody who needs Jesus Christ. Whether you know them or they're a complete stranger, it all comes back to love because that's who God is. And that's what Paul's talking about here. And then he goes on in verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Now something we don't think about a lot of times is the idea that our attitude towards God and our relationship with him has an effect on our attitude towards other people and our relationship with other people. If, and maybe this is only true in my life, maybe it's not yours. I have found that if I'm lazy in my relationship with God, if I don't spend time in his word, if I don't spend time in prayer, if I don't actually spend time in God's presence, I'm not the nicest person to be around sometimes. And my wife will tell you that. In fact, she's called me out before when I'm not being real nice at home. She'll say, when's the last time you did a quiet time? Well, it's probably been a couple days. 
You see, our relationship with God directly affects our relationship with other people. That's why Jesus says the greatest commandment, first and greatest commandment, is what? Love the Lord your God with all what? With all your heart, soul, and mind. What's the second greatest commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see how that works? It's God and then others. If we're not focused on God, we're going to have a hard time focusing on others. If we're not engaging with God, if we're not socializing with God and spending time with Him, then we're going to have a hard time engaging with those around us. We're going to have a hard time engaging with people in the church. When Paul wrote this, this passage here, this is talking about the marks of a good Christian. This is talking about how we engage each other as believers, but this also implies though how you engage people outside of the church. But the church as believers, this is what God has given us. And when it comes to our attitude towards God, it affects our attitude towards other people. That's what it says in John. John 13, it says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It says we are known to be gods because of our love for one another. If we don't have love for one another, how are we different from an unbelieving world? We're not. We're just like everybody else that doesn't know Christ. That's why the church is so important. Because the way we treat each other in the church and the way people look at the church from the outside is a reflection of what we say that we believe about God. If I stand here and I say, I love God and I love his people, and you cut me off in the parking lot and I jump out of my car ready to take you down, guess what? I don't really love other people, do I? I haven't really shown the love of Christ to anybody. That's why we've got to be aware of what we do and what we say, especially in the church. Because, guys, there is a world outside that watches the church that is just waiting for you to slip up, that is just waiting for you to make a mistake. And the only difference between us and that world that is watching the church is that we know Jesus Christ. We are just as guilty of sin. Yes, I've heard people say the church is full of hypocrites. Absolutely. As long as we are alive, as long as we are sinners, we will be hypocrites. And that's exactly why we need the church. That's exactly why we need Christ. Somebody said, a guy told him one time, he said, you know what? I'd like to find the perfect church. And the response to him was, you could find the perfect church, but as soon as you join, it won't be perfect anymore. Because every single one of us is a sinner. Every single one of us has problems. But this is why this is important. Because even in the midst of those problems, we're still called to engage each other and to build each other up and to encourage each other and to show love and honor. And it talks about in those verses, too, that we are called to rejoice in our hope. As believers, do you have a hope? And if so, what is it? What is our hope? What? Yeah. That's the, actually the Jesus answer. That's the, that's the right one that time. Our hope is Jesus. Guys, if you don't know that, then what is your hope? Jesus Christ is the only hope we have. 
As I said before, that's the only difference between us and a world that is going to hell in a handbasket. It's Jesus Christ. And it tells us right there that we're supposed to hold on to our hope, hold on to the fact that the God of the universe created every single one of us, that he cared so much about us in the midst of our sin, he sent his son to die on a cross. That's what we just celebrated, right? His resurrection, his coming back to life after being dead. His hope, or the hope that he's coming back? Guys, if we're not holding on to that hope, what are we holding on to? So when we're engaging with each other, when we're getting into each other's lives, we've got to hold on to that hope. Because that's the only hope we have. That's why it's so important. And then he goes on, and he talks about this. He says, uh, let me make sure I read it right. It says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. And be constant in prayer. If you're holding on to the hope that one day you're going to see God face to face. And you know Jesus Christ died and rose again for you. Scripture tells us that that doesn't promise that the time between now and when you see God is going to be easy. We're not guaranteed that. It tells us that we're supposed to rejoice in tribulation. Or excuse me, be patient in tribulation. Because we are going to face hard times. Some of, some of you may, may remember this. I mentioned probably about two months ago that I had a friend who has stomach cancer. And he went through a bunch of treatment and they told him that it was a terminal cancer. No matter what they did, he might have at most four to five months if he continued the treatment. So he decided after the first round to stop. He wasn't going to do any more treatments because it was either lay in bed sick from the chemo or be well for a little while and enjoy his family, and then pass away from his sickness. He got to the point where he couldn't eat solid food anymore because he had cancer in his stomach. They put in a feeding tube, and the feeding tube just made the cancer angry. It it was irritating. It was causing him pain, so they took it out. So basically, he had no food. He was that way for about a week. Last Thursday, he passed away. But this guy, (laughs) up until the week before, he couldn't type on a computer anymore was online through a website he had set up to tell people what was going on in his life. And every single post he made every single week had about five, six sentences about what he was going through. And the next two paragraphs were about Jesus Christ and who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ meant in his life and how important Jesus Christ is to every single person in this world and how badly we need him. We're going to talk about holding on to your hope. Being patient in tribulation. That man was in pain. But you know what? Till the very end, until he could not type on a computer, it was all about Christ. That's what engaging in other people's lives looks like. The last part is this. In that last verse, it says that we are supposed to be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. Praying to God, talking to God, listening to God. Now, I know it feels weird sometimes when somebody says you need to sit and you need to just listen to God. Be still, is what Scripture says, and know that I am God. It feels weird when you're sitting there in a room listening to somebody that you can't see and somebody that you may never hear an audible voice from. But that's that time alone with God. That's what prayer is. Prayer is not just giving God our checklist. 
God, thank you for today. God, help me do this. God, help me do this. God, I'd really love it if you take care of this. That's not prayer. Prayer is recognizing who God is. It's, it's, it's an acronym. It's ACTS. It's adoration. Praising God for who he is. Just because he's God. Confession. Telling him what we need to be forgiven for. Yeah, he knows, but he wants us to tell him. Thanksgiving. Thanking God for what he's done in your life. Good, bad, whatever it is. And supplication. It's acts. Supplication is then you bring the things you're worried about to God. The people you're praying for. The things that are going on in your life. You see what's going on there? It's about God first. It's about our sinful nature second. It's about thankfulness. And then it's about, okay, God, I need help. It starts with God. It says to be constant in prayer. That means we actually have to take time out of our daily lives to pray. That means, guys, one day when you're married and you're leading a family, you're going to have to lead your family in prayer. You do it personally, but you're going to need to do it corporately as well. That means in the church, somebody asks you to pray, even though it may be uncomfortable, even though you may really not want to do it, it's a chance to talk to God. Who cares what everybody else thinks? And I can say that because I was the guy that wouldn't pray. All the way up through college, somebody would look at me in a group and say, Jesse, would you pray? And I'd look at him and say, no, I won't. And I had my reasons, embarrassed to speak, didn't like to be in front of people, whatever, whatever you want to throw out there. But you know what? It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about God. And it's an opportunity to talk to him and be constant in prayer the way Scripture talks about here. We've got to be social and engage with God first so that we can be social and engage in the lives of those around us. And the church is how God gives us to do that. He goes on in verse 13. It says, contribute to the needs of saints and seek to show hospitality. That's pretty straightforward. When it says contribute to the needs of saints, other believers... You see somebody around you, somebody that you know is a brother or sister in Christ, and they need help, if you can help them, help them. If you can't, try to find somebody that can. That's not a very hard one. And then it says to show hospitality. Seek to show hospitality. The, uh, the Greek word here for that is, is, I don't know if I'm going to say it, philozenos is how you say that. That means love for strangers. That means people you don't even know. In the early church, the way the gospel was spread is that people would travel, like Paul did. And as he traveled, he didn't check into hotels. He stayed in the homes of other believers. People he didn't know, people he didn't have a relationship with, except for the fact that they both knew Jesus Christ. That was their connection point. And because of that, they showed hospitality. And that is how the gospel of Jesus Christ spread in the early church. That's the way we're supposed to treat each other. is to show hospitality. To have love for strangers, like we talked about earlier. That's what it means as we talk about engaging in other people's lives. And then he continues in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless those and do not curse them. Now... We have a hard time with that sometimes, don't we? 
It says, show, don't show love to just believers, but I want you to take those people that are in opposition to you, those people you don't like, those people that get under your skin, those people who have it out for you, that you can't stand, and I want you to bless them. I want you to love them. I want you to pray for them. I want you to take time out of your day to give them some time. That's hard, isn't it? And understand, Paul is writing this to a group of people that just a few years after he wrote this, there were a lot of Roman Christians that were killed by an emperor named Nero. This is a man who was known historically for having parties and lighting Christians on fire tied to stakes for entertainment. This is who Paul's writing this to. If they can bless those who cursed them or persecuted them, I think we can, because most of us aren't ever going to face anything like that. That's what Paul's talking about. He's saying that not only in the church, but outside the church, we need to engage in other people's lives. We need to seek to be a blessing. Maybe you're driving through the car line at your McDonald's or Starbucks or whatever. Pay for somebody's meal behind you. It's a blessing. It's a little way to show love. It's a little way to engage in somebody else's life. Even though you may never talk to them, you've blessed them. That person that you cannot stand, and most of you probably have a name or a face in your head right now. What would it be like for you to bless them? And I'm not saying go hand them a $20 bill and say, I love you, man. I'm not saying, I'm not saying... You've got to do some big extravagant thing and say, you know what? Christ told me to love you, so I love you even though I don't really like you. I'm talking little stuff. Little ways that you could be a blessing to somebody. What would that look like for you? I'm not going to say what it is because you know what that is for you. You know what makes you feel uncomfortable. You know what would be you going out of your way to bless somebody that you don't care for. That's what Paul's telling us. That's what God's telling us to engage in. Romans 12, 15. This is probably the best known verse from this passage. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. When we are truly social, when we have really engaged in the lives of others, this is a result. Many of us, We've, we've got friends that we can be happy for, that we can be sad for. But let's talk about, let's talk about the, the weeping part for a second. It's, it's kind of easy to be sad for people because we can, we can empathize, we can sympathize, we can, we can feel some of the emotions they're feeling. Even though maybe we've never gone through the experience, we can have some idea, even an inkling of what they may be experiencing, and we can feel sad for them and maybe even cry for them. But what about the flip side? What about joy? It's great. It's easy to rejoice when somebody is rejoicing. But what about when their joy comes at the expense of something that we wanted? Like when you've got a friend who makes the team and you tried out for the same team and they're ecstatic that you didn't make it. It's hard to rejoice at that point, isn't it? It is. This means that you take on somebody else's experience, somebody else's happiness, somebody else's sadness, and it's yours now. 
Yeah, it's not your experience, but you feel exactly what they feel as if it was yours. Show that picture, Billy. You may not be able to see that very well, but that's my son, Nathan. Nathan, a week ago, yeah, a late birthday present from his grandparents was to take him out to St. Mark's on my father-in-law's airboat for two days and go fishing. So last Thursday, we get this text, this picture of Nathan catching redfish out there at St. Mark's. And he doesn't have a real big grin on his face right there, but that boy has not stopped talking about that fishing trip. He loved it. That, that is his I'm really excited look right there. Takes after his dad. That's it right there. He's happy. But you know what? When I got that picture, I couldn't stop grinning because I know how much that meant to him. For me, I understand at least a little bit of what that means when it says to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice because I see that smile and I know that boy and I know what that smile means. And it makes me smile because of it. When we engage in each other's lives, when we are truly social, especially within the church, guys, that's the reaction we're able to have. Is that we can feel what other people feel. We can rejoice with them. We can weep with them. We can actually know something about their life other than the snapshots we get in a Facebook post. Paul keeps going. Finishes up in verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Basically, we're not always going to get along, especially in the church. There are people in this room that don't get along with each other. There are people in that building across the way that don't get along with each other. But you see, Scripture says that we are supposed to live in harmony with one another. If you've got something you can't get past with somebody else, you can still be civil to them. You don't have to be ugly. You don't have to go out of your way to make it a point to let them know how much you can't stand them. You can live in harmony with them. That doesn't mean you're best friends, but it does mean you can at least be social. You can at least engage to a certain point. And he goes on and he says, Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Be humble. Don't think more of yourself than you should because as great as you think that you are, there's always somebody that's better. That's just a fact of life. I know that sounds really mean, but it's true. How, how, do, you, how do you be nice to someone that you don't like without being fake? She, sa- she said you need, you need to think about Okay, maybe what happened in their life to make them that way? Is there something I did in this situation to make them not like me or me not like them? And if you can't figure that out or it can't be solved, she said at least be cordial. Most of the time when it's somebody we don't like, they know we don't like them. By the fact that we either let them know or we avoid them completely. And they wonder, what did I do to offend that person? But you know what? We cannot necessarily like somebody and still be polite to them. We can still speak to them. You don't have to go out of your way, give them your car, let them stay in your house. You don't have to. But there are, there are small ways that you can still be polite to people, even though you don't particularly care for them. And here's, here's a suggestion I have for you. And Miss Kathleen 
suggested this to somebody one time, and, and it's stuck in my head ever since she did. When you've got a problem with somebody, somebody sit back here said it. Pray for them. And let me tell you why. Because when you pray for that person that you have a problem with or they have a problem with you, God's going to do one of two things. He's going to change their heart or He's going to change yours. Because that's the way it works. That's what God does. So that's how you can be kind to somebody even though you don't really like them. Pray for them. That may be the only way you can bless somebody that doesn't like you is to pray for them. You're lifting them up to God. How can you go wrong with that? It sounds like a a simple, almost trite answer, but sometimes that's all you can do. You can be polite to them, hold a door for them, offer to help them, simple little things that you would do for strangers. And you may get no response, but you know what? At some point, you've done what you can do, and then all you can do is pray for them. If you're trying to talk with that person, you're still trying to be polite, have regular conversation, and and they just continue to insult you, to argue with you, should you continue to talk to that person? Well, at some point, you can only take so much personal abuse. It's like we talked about a couple weeks ago. It's I'm not saying this is a similar situation, but we talked about people that we know are specifically caught in sin, and we tell them about sin, and we tell them what Scripture says about it, and at some point... There's a wall there, and and they're not going to listen to us anymore. We can make sure that they know we're there for them, and if they want to talk to us, we'll be more than happy to. But at some point, you also have to protect yourself a little bit. You can't intentionally put yourself in that situation over and over and over. Just let them know that you are open if they would like to pursue that relationship. That may not happen every time, but a lot of times, over time, that can happen. Because if they're being just downright nasty to you, at some point, they're going to wonder why you're not doing it back. And then you get the opportunity to talk to them and tell them why. Say, hey, I don't, I don't necessarily like what you've done, but Christ tells me to love you, so I'm loving you the best way I know how. And you get a chance to rebuild that bridge. It's the church, guys. We are wired, we are designed to connect to each other, to be involved in each other's lives. That means when somebody in this room is hurting, we ought to hurt with them. When somebody in this room is happy, we ought to rejoice with them. That's what Scripture tells us. And the reason we do that is because God has made us that way. God is in relationship from the beginning. When God says, let us make man in our image, it is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is a relational being, and he has made us to have a relationship with him and a relationship with each other. So here's my encouragement to you. Use your social apps. Don't let that be the main way you get to know people. Engage in somebody's life. Be social face-to-face, life-on-life. Get involved with people and really get to know them. Do it in the church because this ought to be the safest place for you to do that. Yes, we're full of hypocrites. Yes, we're a bunch of sinners. But Lord willing, we're all striving to be more like Christ so we're better than we would be without. God has given us the church to love him and love each other and to connect 
with each other. And if you are not a member of a church, you need to be. Don't church hop. Don't go to one church this Sunday and another church this Sunday and three different churches over the next three Wednesdays. Pick a church. If this is your church, great. If this is not the church for you, find a Bible-teaching, Christ-centered church in this community and go there. But plug in and be social in the church. Hold on. What's that? I can't hear you. you guys speak up. What if you keep getting invited by other people? Okay. Let me put it this way. If you have the freedom to not be at your church because you're going to all these different other churches, then you're not engaged in your church. You're not. And that, that, doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean that you're necessarily serving in every possible area in the church and doing everything. But if, if you can, there's a guy named Donald Whitley who wrote a book called Spiritual Disciplines. And he put it this way. If you can miss church without missing church, there's something wrong in your spiritual walk. If you cannot be at your church, the church that God has made you a part of and plugged you into, if you can skip it and feel like you hadn't missed anything, then you're missing something. There's nothing wrong with going to visit with a church, but you still need to be engaged in a church. I know people, guys, I know people that have gone to seminary, to Bible college, and they will spend so much time in seminary and doing their studies and sitting around the campus talking about who God is and talking theology and application that they never actually get into a church. Guess what? They've missed the entire point of what they're doing. We are designed to engage in the body of Christ. And if we're not doing that, <laughs> there's something off. Guys, there's a hundred different ways to get involved in a church, to engage in a church. Number one, it starts with becoming a member of that church. You can do that through baptism. You can do that when you come down and you say, I want to be a member of this church. And if you've not been baptized, if you're not a baptized member of a church, then that's a whole other conversation we need to have because that's the first thing we're called to do once we confess Jesus Christ is to be baptized to make that public profession. Once you become a member of a church, get involved. Be a part of Wednesdays. Be a part of Sundays. Get involved in other ministries. Some of you ladies in here have told me you want small groups for girls. It happens once a month on Sunday night. It's happening this coming Sunday at 6 p.m. in the lower level of the church. Get involved. There's ways to be a part of the church. There's ways to engage. If you can show up at church and walk out and not talk to anybody, you are not engaged. And you're not doing what God has designed you to do. Guys, we're supposed to be social. It's the way God made us. But we need to understand what that means. We need to understand how God designed it. Next week, we're going to keep talking about this. I would like to ask somebody else to pray tonight. Somebody besides me, a volunteer.